At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. And I'm delighted to say that after a great deal of hunting down, I have at last managed to corner Alex Wodak into a chair in Australia to join me on the podcast. Now, Alex is someone that you probably don't know, particularly if you've not been in the harm reduction field, but he's actually an absolute legend in this field. He's someone that's inspired me in my career to pursue harm reduction approaches. And I think after listening to his story today, uh, agree with me that he's someone that should be much more appreciated than he is because he's been a pioneer, really starting back from the days of HIV prevention. And he's done it in a, in a country which is often very challenging to work with, even though it's a, a very rich Western country, Australia. So, Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be with you, David, and with uh, friends in England working in this challenging area. So why don't we kick off? Are you telling us a bit about your background and how you got into this whole field of drugs and drug policy? Yeah, I think you, you started off as a doctor, is that right? Yes, I started off, and I'm still a doctor, although I'm not currently registered. But I'm, in fact, I'm a physician, which means people who deal with internal medical conditions. And I trained in Melbourne, southern city in Australia, and then from 1976 to 1982, I worked in the United Kingdom, ah. uh, in London, in a series of teaching hospitals ending up doing a research project for two and a half years about on genetic susceptibility to alcoholic liver disease. So why do some people drink uh, prodigious quantities of alcohol and pay very little penalty and others drink a fraction of that amount and the heavens descend upon them? So it's that kind of project. You hadn't still not resolved as far as I understand. I mean, I guess when you started it, you didn't quite have the same tools as we have today with the whole genome sequencing. Must have been a, it a challenge. Yeah, but it was high science for the times. And it was done. I was working at the, what's now called the National Liver Unit at King's College Hospital in Denmark mm -hmm. Hill, uh, working for Roger Williams. Oh, yes. And what I, I had a few weeks before, between when my previous job had finished at uh, the Central Middlesex and uh, this job started at King's and I read a lot in that period. I'd always been interested in alcohol and drugs and I came to the conclusion reading a lot about alcohol that alcohol was really fundamentally a public health problem and a political problem and that the biological aspects of it had been overstated and really it was the social and economic and uh, political aspects that really mattered. So I pursued that vigorously. And while I was doing that, it occurred to me that alcohol and tobacco were really peas from the same pod. 
And then I realized illicit drugs were peas from the same pot. And to be honest, I got much more interested in the social, economic, political aspects of boot-altering drugs than the biological aspects, which seemed to me had been sort of overemphasized. And then in that period, the member for Finchley had become prime minister and in 1979, as you might recall. And so that was um, a cue for me to go back home. So I arrived back, well, I, before I arrived back home, I was sitting, eating my muesli for breakfast on June the 5th, 1981, reading the Times. And there was a report about this new weird condition that had been recognized in the United States, which we later called AIDS and later still called HIV. And it was just a tiny little paragraph, and I remembered reading that. And that paragraph has pursued me for decades ever since, because by the time I arrived in Australia and started working in Australia, which was uh, beginning of July 1982, we learnt a lot more in that brief period about the condition we were dealing with and cases started appearing in Australia and it turned out that my hospital was in the national epicentre of the Australian epidemic. So this was back in Melbourne, was it? No, this was in Sydney. You went to Sydney, back in Sydney. Sydney's got the largest gay community and the largest population of people who inject drugs and they, they're, the geographical areas where they live uh, have a lot of overlap. And we were right in the middle of it. And so the first 30 or so cases in the country all came at, to St. Vincent's Hospital. And although I'm not religious and I'm not Christian, this is a hospital, a Catholic hospital, that was founded and run by nuns from Ireland in 1857. They'd come to Australia and they'd come to Australia to, to look after the poor and the disadvantaged and they really meant it. They really were inspired by the words of Christ and still are. So we had the great good fortune in Australia for this epidemic to happen on the doorstep of St. Vincent's Hospital and the influence of the nuns and their compassion and their lack of any ability to make judgments of people was really critically important and that really shaped the whole national response. So I was in the middle of it and I realised very quickly that HIV spreading among people who inject drugs was the most rapid conduit for HIV and then spreading to the general population. Although there was a lot of discussion about HIV spreading from men who have sex with men to the general population, that would be overshadowed by HIV spreading from people who inject drugs, among people who inject drugs and from them to the general population. You were working in, in St. Vincent's, what, seeing people with immune deficiency. Were you actually working as a physician with, with HIV then? Yes, I was, and I was doing endoscopies and sigmoidoscopies and God knows what, all of that. And it was, I can tell you, it was a horrible experience seeing these young men struck down with a untreatable illness and having agonizing deaths. And we didn't know in the beginning what was causing it. And then we learned gradually, bit by bit, the cause of it. And I didn't know whether all of us people were who looked after them were at risk. 
that wasn't really known. So I realised very quickly that there'd always be people who would treat people with what we now are starting to call HIV, but there wouldn't be doctors willing to work in the prevention area. And it was prevention that really, really... So I sort of got sucked into this vortex where I started working to stop HIV and I realised very quickly that I couldn't be at all effective unless I worked with people who injected drugs. So a colleague and I called a meeting and there were about 30 of us sitting around a room in a circle. Half of us wore neckties and properly dressed, etc., etc., and the other half wore purple nail polish and fishnet stockings and so forth. But we all wanted the same thing. We all wanted a country that was not going to be overrun by HIV. And we were determined to do anything we could to stop that from happening. So we realised fairly quickly that uh, we had to give out clean needles and syringes and get used needles and syringes out of circulation and that we had to expand the methadone treatment program and liberalise it. We had to spread the word about what was important and what wasn't true, a very big issue in the early days of HIV. And we had to also, we came to realise after a while, help people who use drugs to organise themselves into their own organisation. So that was, that was the broad map. And my colleagues and I worked very hard to, to get needle syringe programs accepted. And with no luck at all, I wrote myself, I wrote 13 submissions to the Department of Health, begging the department to allow me to do this. And then I realised after a while that I was never going to get official permission. If I wanted to start all the epidemic, I had to do it, we had to do it ourselves and run the risk that that entailed. And so we started doing it on the 12th of November, 1986. I had uh, uh, three kids at that stage. I had a job, a career, a marriage, a, a house, and really there was some risk. But of course, nothing like the risk that a, a female nurse, non-white, would have had doing exactly the same thing. So I took the risk, or we took the risk. It was really a, a group activity. And all the heavens descended on us. We got wall-to-wall media across the country about aiding and abetting drug use and so forth. I got called in the health department and told to stop immediately. The chief medical officer whispered in my ear to keep going. And so this was my introduction to the world of what we now call harm reduction and of course and the common fallacy is to think that's when harm reduction began it's a load of nonsense we've been doing harm reduction forever with drugs and generally car seat belts are harm reduction motorcycle helmets are harm reduction airbags are harm reduction and we can go on with a long list so I then became very involved in pursuing this kind of approach in other parts of the country. I helped to foster that. I'm conscious of the fact that probably most of the people listening to this don't even have no sense of what it was like to be confronted with a, a disorder which was so different and and so targeting young people. Uh, 
and with no real understanding of what to do. That I don't think people understand how it was. I mean, I remember, you know, the, the sort of being incredulous that something like this could be happening, and with the, you know, the sarcosis. God, I can't say it. It's only in the morning for me. Carposi sarcoma suddenly emerged. Carposi sarcoma. Yeah. Yes. Tell us, tell us more about what like because you were, I wasn't at the front line. I was psychiatry, so I was sort of seeing it at a distance, but you were a physician. Yes, it was a horrible period. There's no two ways about it. And the and as it happened in the Western world, different in, in low and middle income countries, but in the Western world, the three groups who were most at risk were men who had sex with men, men and women, mainly women, who sold sex, and people who injected drugs. So the three groups that our community really struggles to feel any compassion for were affected. And, of course, a lot of people drew conclusions about the wrath of God striking these people. So it was horrible whichever way you looked at it. Um, but the gay men in Sydney, who I took inspiration from, were had been involved in a struggle to get marriage equality at that time, and they switched those organisations overnight into anti-HIV organisations. And they were demonic in their uh, sort of ruthlessness to bring the epidemic under control. So they were really an inspiration. And I looked at them and I thought, okay, this is a well-educated, um, often well-educated, high-income group, and they can do this, but who's going to do this among the people who inject drugs? So that's, that propelled me into this activity. And look, I do want to emphasise that almost all the work I've done all my life has been in groups, not not individual. And this was very much a group activity. So Please don't get the impression that it was me doing this. It was uh, different groups I was working with. I just think that it's interesting you raise this, the power of the gay community, which, which I saw when I was working at NIH in the States. They changed the way in which the FDA worked because they, there was a sense, A, where there was an enormous urgency to do something, but also the FDA were, do, were not seeing it with the same level of, of concern and urgency as the community. And I remember you know, being in NIH and, and, and the institute was besieged by large hundreds, what, tens of thousands of gay protesters demanding accelerated assessment of, of antivirals. And, and it worked. And in fact, you know, in a way, they, you know, this was such a precedent for thinking differently when you do have epidemics. And so I think you know, your, uh, your initiatives in Australia were probably you know, quite seminal in accelerating what happened in as well. Yes, they were. They had an international influence, a regional influence. But in the United States, we can't ignore the fact of this interaction between Anthony Fauci at NIH and Larry Kramer in York, the, the gay activist. And Larry Kramer was tearing strips off Fauci publicly, repeatedly, defaming him. And Fauci's response, thank God for this, was not to recoil and say, everything I'm doing is fine, and switch off. Instead, he reached out to Kramer, he rang him, and arranged for them to have coffee together. And they had a coffee, and uh, they still thought she had to put up, apparently, with a lot of uh, 
forthright language from Larry Kramer. And then Fauci made the realisation that Kramer was basically right, that NIH was going too slowly, they had to speed up, and they had to work with the gay community. And that's what happened in the United States, and that had a huge impact around the world. So we did this in Sydney, and this spread around the country quite quickly. So we had needle syringe programs, despite the ferocious resistance of opponents of needle syringe programs, we managed to get that happening within two years in every state and territory, a big country of, what is it, 7 million square kilometres, so it's quite an undertaking to try and deploy needle syringe programs across that whole country, but we managed. Was that largely done through charities then, because the state wasn't supporting it? Well, it went to whoever would do it, and it was different organisations in different parts of the country. But the important thing was, warning, I'm going to use a Brexit phase here to get it done. So we did get it done, and we expanded the methadone program, and we carried out very earthy education programs that didn't use Department of Health language or university language. They used street language to talk about the things that needed to be talked about. It was all very pragmatic. And the people who use drugs played a a central role in helping to shape the policy and to deliver the policy. So Australia was, at that stage, was really very progressive on these issues, very pragmatic, uh, non-judgmental. And that was true of uh, each of those areas, the men who had sex with men, the women who sold sex, and the people who inject drugs. Hello everyone, Dr Hannah Thurger here. Sorry to interrupt the show, but we have something really exciting that we wanted to share with you all. Drug Science is teaming up with the UK's most prolific psychedelic research centre, Imperial College London, to record a one-off podcast special. But wait, there's more. On Tuesday the 15th of August from 6.30 until 9.30, we're taking the conversation offline and bringing it to the heart of West London. So yes, that's right. Not only are we collaborating with Imperial College for this prestigious podcast episode, this will be a live podcast recording and you're invited to be a part of our audience. Imperial College is sending us their best and brightest minds for an exclusive insight into the world of psychedelic clinical trials many of which are not even public knowledge at this point. So mark your calendars for Tuesday the 15th of August, doors open at 6pm and the podcast recording starts at 6.30pm sharp. And as always, our Drug Science Premium Community members will be able to attend this event for free and will even be invited to participate in the conversation too. We'll have a Q&A session where community members can ask their burning questions to our panel of experts. So it's a chance to engage directly with the leading minds in in the field and ask Dave pretty much anything. Find out how to become a community member by visiting the link in the show notes. Otherwise, tickets are available now. Please see the other link in the show notes. So don't wait too long, though, as space is limited and we do expect this event to sell out fast. I look forward to seeing you there. And now back to the show. And so then I became involved in, from 1990, from 1996, I became involved in establishing an organisation with colleagues from other countries around the world called the International Harm Reduction Association and used that organisation 
later headed by Jerry Stimson, and used that organization to sort of propagate the harm reduction approach around the world, initially for harm reduction, uh, for, for illicit drugs, but then it spread to, well, what's the value of it for alcohol? What's the value of it for tobacco? What's the value for prescription drugs? We had a meeting in 1992 before we'd got to that stage in Melbourne. I chaired the program committee and we decided that what the objectives of the conference would be and indeed the objectives were to examine the appropriateness, if at all, of harm reduction for alcohol, for tobacco and for prescription drugs and also for what we then called developing countries. And we got a grant and got people from developing countries to come to the meeting, which was held in Melbourne in 1992. And I was very keen to get Professor Michael Russell to talk about tobacco harm. And he travelled all that long way and gave a terrific paper. But in 1992, we didn't have effective tools for tobacco harm reduction. That happened not long afterwards, but we didn't have them then. So my life has really revolved around this. We had a conference in the late 1990s in Geneva of the International Harm Reduction Association. Uh, we had it in Geneva to try and push WHO to support drug harm reduction. And at that stage, WHO was under the strong influence of the United States, who had sent over a senior staff member to shut down harm reduction in WHO. And WHO sent a memo to its Geneva staff saying no one was allowed to attend the harm reduction meeting. So at that stage, they were even against needle syringe programs. And that history, of course, is being repeated now with their attitude to vaping, yes, yes. which is very hostile. Can we just tidy up the, the injecting drugs story and then we'll move on to vaping now? So, so obviously you started off with needle exchanges and then you, were you instrumental in setting up the, uh, the, the very famous Sydney safe injecting facility? Was that something that you, know, you were part of or did that emerge out of your work? I was and uh, very much so. And on both occasions, we got thwarted by officialdom, and we unfortunately had to resort to civil disobedience and broke the law in order for it to happen. And it wouldn't have happened in both cases without resorting to civil disobedience. So I, I referred to that as needle syringe programs and medically supervised injecting centres as being pre-legal. When really. <laughs> but that's not legal in Britain. That's the problem. Well, not obviously we've got needle exchange, but we still haven't got safe injecting facilities in the in, except one pioneer, Peter Crycant, in uh, in Scotland with his van. Yeah. Yes, but you did have, which isn't known in Britain uh, for some reason. You did have in St Giles near King's College Hospital. You did have a medically supervised injecting centre in the 70s or 80s. So there is that history. Look, I think it illustrates the fact that harm reduction is often very, very patchy. It's patchy geographically, it's patchy over time, and it's patchy also between drugs and even within drugs. So some things are possible in some countries at certain times, but not at other times. And sometimes 
I mean, look at Sweden, where snooze is very possible for people who, men who smoke cigarettes, but they can't make that quite official. And yet Sweden has been pretty terrible, really, on opposing drug harm reduction for so many decades. So these things are, are very patchy. Look at the United States, where they've only recently started giving federal funding for needle syringe programs. It's been held up all the time, and as a consequence, they have horrific HIV rates among their people who inject drugs still. It's a crazy area. Well, Australia for a bit. So I, I have to say, you know, embarrassed. I don't know how widely available safe injecting rooms are in Australia. Is that, is that, is that now legal under federal law? I mean, how, tell me about how it's developed in Sydney. Uh, very we've got one in Sydney and we've got one in Melbourne. And the one in Melbourne was only established about four or five years ago. And the premier of that state, who's still the premier, was bitterly opposed to it. And then he changed his mind and then allowed it to happen. And on the first anniversary of the Melbourne, it's called Medically Supervised Injecting Room, he gave a press conference and he said, I oppose the Melbourne Medically Supervised Injecting Room. I was wrong. Every day they're open, they save lives. And what we need to do is have more of them. So they're still trying to find a site for a second one. But really, we need four or five, at least, in each of our big cities. Yeah. So it's, and, but do you, it's, that's it. It's just Sydney and Melbourne, then the rest of the... Sydney and Melbourne. So we've got two in a country of um, seven million square kilometres with a very large population of people who inject drugs. And we haven't even gone to the stage as uh, so many centres have in uh, continental Europe, where they have make it possible for people to either inject or to inhale drugs. And, of course, inhalation is much less threatening, much less dangerous than injecting, which is inherently dangerous. And I've seen those centres in several countries in Europe, and they're really fabulous. Particularly recommend a centre in Frankfurt. Right. So, but just thinking about the Australian, is this is it politics? Then is it just that there's there's votes in being anti-drug users, or is it some kind of moral thing? Is it some kind of Christian thing about drug? I mean, what's your take on why the evidence takes so long to change practice? Well, it's all of the above, but we have to remember that there there are, unfortunately, many, many other examples where there's an inexplicable delay between a scientific discovery, a clear scientific discovery, and then a translation into policy. And an example I often use is the example of the discovery that the consumption of citrus fruits prevented the onset of scurvy. And... This was noted in Vasco da Gama's time, and James Lee, the British Navy, in 1747, uh, actually set up a, an early version of what we would now call a randomised controlled trial, um, emphasis on the random, but anyway, and the results were crystal clear in 1747. And it took another 150 years before that was translated into policy. So there are many examples where policy really has a difficult battle with self-evident truth. And where we're dealing with something which is 
so politically charged as illicit drugs and where the bad policy is so often terrific politics, uh, we really struggle. And this is the case with illicit drugs. Do you think it's more politics than morality? Pretty well. In the case of tobacco, it's probably other things as well. There's probably a lot of the organisations vehemently opposed to tobacco harm reduction, not so much in the United Kingdom but outside, are clearly financially benefiting from their strident opposition to pragmatic and realistic policies. So it varies a little bit, but it doesn't help if the populations that are being targeted are demonised. And uh, and really one theme that runs through all of this is the theme of human rights, that whenever a population is d- denied the protection of its, denied its human rights, public health consequences are soon to follow. And we saw that in large measure with HIV. We're seeing that now with the, the smokers. Well, let's get on to that because this is, uh, this is where you and I have had a lot of interchange over the last five or six years. So 10 years ago, Australia was really sort of moving ahead of the world in terms of trying to deal with the smoking epidemic. And if we were all lauding your, uh, your vision of plain packaging and no advertising, which we saw as potentially the solution, we now realise it wasn't. But we've also seen this the failure to of Australia to pick up what's our alternative solutions. We've already touched on snus, and you will, you'll now talk about vaping. I'd love your take on that because you've been so intimately involved in this in this process, or, or you know, on tobacco harm reduction for so long. Take us back to the beginning, and, and after that, Russell. Well, I guess it, Russell came in to Melbourne in where was nine was it ninety two and said, you know, you smoke, yes, you die for the tar, and that was. I guess that's the start of nicotine harm reduction. So tell us your travel, your, you know, your, your journey from that point, or Australia's journey. Well, Australia's journey was that uh, Australia was, a, was indeed a leader in cutting big tobacco down to size. That was a step that was critically important, and some very courageous people took big tobacco on and won. And that really was very important. But... Really, when you depends how you evaluate success. If you see a lot of what they were saying was that not only does big tobacco have to be cut down to size, and so that David has got to clobber Goliath and win, that's got to happen. But also, the tobacco companies have got to be made less profitable, made less economically successful, and They have failed completely in that. The shares in tobacco companies around the world were the best performing shares on the share market. I'm no expert in shares or financial or economic matters, but it's pretty clear when you look at the graph, when you compare them with the armaments industry or energy or, you know, oil and gas or automobiles, whatever you're comparing them with, for a hundred years they were the the leader, and they ended up producing, today you can produce a packet of 20 cigarettes for 28 cents, US cents, and they sell wholesale for $2.50. So these are incredible money-making machines, and that hasn't changed. 
And the, the next step in all of that was the mass, so-called Master Settlement Agreement in the United States in 1998, when the six major tobacco companies were uh, decided that they had to have a settlement uh, with as many states as possible. 46 states agreed to settle, uh, plus a few territories. And the overall package came to something like $250 billion. And your state of Pennsylvania or Oklahoma or whatever would get paid in 2024 uh, according to the smoking rate in 2023. That, it was that kind of a package. Now, I followed that a bit at the time, but have much more so since. That's really an incredibly important event because what happened was the tobacco company, uh, very sharp people, I have to say, whatever you might think of them, got a lot out of that package. They didn't really mind that advertising was stopped because advertising was a cost and also advertising was an opportunity for new entrants to the field. <laughs> got the monopoly. They got a cartel out of this and they got the freedom in writing, they got the freedom to charge whatever prices they wanted. So they've transformed themselves into a cartel. Now, all that continued until 2017 when suddenly the share price of big tobacco plummeted and it fell by, they, their prices fell by about 50% between 2017 and 2021. Why did that happen? Well, we don't really know exactly, but it, what it looks like is that investors started wondering if big tobacco was having their Kodak moment or about to have it, that in failing to go from analogue to digital, as Kodak cameras famously didn't do, that uh, the big tobacco was repeating that experience. And they seem to have accelerated their transformation from combustible cigarettes to non-combustible tobacco products. Now, I was fascinated to listen to a podcast of Andre Kalanzopoulos, interviewed by Ethan Nadelman on the wonderful psychoactive podcast series that Ethan's put out. And so here's this 28-year-old Greek engineer who joins Philip Morris International in 1985 with no background in tobacco or smoking or public health or anything. He's an engineer. And he joins them, and he's very smart and climbs the ranks, very personable, as you can see here in the interview. And in the 1990s, he comes to the conclusion, the cigarette is obsolete. And in 2004, he's sufficiently influential that along with colleagues, they persuaded the board of Philip Morris International, the largest traded tobacco company in the world with a market capitalization of about 130 billion US dollars. So they persuaded PMI to stop investing in research to improve the cigarette and to start investing in what they called reduced risk products. By 2015, only 0.2% of PMI revenue came from reduced risk products. But by last year, 2022, 32% of their income had come from reduced risk products. And their aim is to reach 50% by 2025. So here's this rapid transformation of a huge company, the biggest traded tobacco company in the world, and 
are clearly a market leader and others, others are following, including British American Tobacco and Japan Tobacco. And just explain a little bit to the listeners about what, what you mean by reduced risk, because not everyone will be as expert as, as you and me on this. So just, just clarify what, what they've done, in particular, in, I guess, in relation to, to the heat not burn. Well, we've got four different kinds of reduced risk products now, and this means that people can get nicotine sometimes with tobacco, sometimes without, as I'll explain, but at very much lower risk. That The critical factor is there's no combustion of tobacco in any reduced risk product. Of course, there's combustion at 600, 800 degrees centigrade with the conventional cigarette. So the, the oldest reduced risk product is Snus, which is probably 200 years old, and that's a oral, smokeless, moist, pasteurized tobacco and the pasteurization is important because that kills the most of the bacteria that produce the nitrosamines and the nitrosamines produce the cancer so snus has been popular in swedish men for 100 years 200 years and indeed it's banned in the rest of the european union and so when you look at uh, swedish men and compare them to men in all other European Union countries, we find that the Swedish men have the lowest rates by a large margin of smoking, smoking-related diseases, and also smoking-related deaths. So here's the proof of the concept of tobacco harm margin. And then in the 21st century, we've got three new reduced-risk products. First, we had the vaping, which was developed by a Chinese chemist, Hon Lik, who's banished to the countryside for some political reason, becomes a smoker, not out of preference, but because everyone else is smoking, to his horror becomes a chain smoker, tries to give it up, can't do that, manages to get allowed to go back to live in Beijing, studies some um, pharmacy and works for a ginseng company and at nights and weekends tinkers uh, to realizing that nicotine was the problem. He had to find a way of getting nicotine without the stuff that would kill him. So he developed a vaping machine, the first commercially successful vaping machine in the world. There'd been a few other attempts um, in the 60s and 70s to develop one, but we didn't have the powerful batteries that the smartphone had delivered to us. So Honlik was able to do that. He did that in 2003, it took a few years to patent and then bring to market, 2007, and then it started taking off in 2010. And a, a British Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, was persuaded by his psychologist friend David Halpin that uh, he should make vaping readily available in the United Kingdom. And David Cameron, being an ex-smoker himself, immediately got it. He could see the hand-mouth movements, he could see the nicotine, he could, he realised all of that, connected the dots, and that's really been incredibly important. So that's the second option, and that involves no tobacco, involves heating, but no, uh, and it of course involves nicotine. Then the third option was, was heated tobacco products, and these really came out of Philip Morris International, who started doing research on this in 2004. 
And by up to now, they've spent $9 billion in research on reduced risk products, and their products are now the market leader in that area of reduced of heated tobacco products, particularly important in Japan. And then we've had since uh, heated tobacco products, a lot of other tobacco companies um, also developing their own heated tobacco products. And then we had the fourth of the of the range is nicotine pouches, which are just like snooze, except they have no tobacco in them. So we've got two of the four options have tobacco, two have no tobacco, two involve heating, two involve no heating. And so we've got a fantastic array by 2023 of options to reduce uh, many of the 1 billion deaths that we're expecting between now and 2,100 deaths from smoking. It's important also to realise that in South Asia and the Pacific, we have another population of 300, 400 million people, mainly women, who chew crude forms of oral tobacco. And they get very high rates of head and neck cancer, terrible way to die. And they and it's popular among women because it's stigmatized. Women who smoke are stigmatized and discriminated against. So those who want to have nicotine take these crude oral preparations. And so there's another challenge we have to figure out a way that's culturally acceptable to get a product out to these people that's affordable and attractive to them. So there's there's a lot to be done here, and it's really the golden opportunity for public health of the 21st century. Wouldn't disagree with that at all. But as you said, the WHO are proving very challenging in trying to get them to seek kind of any kind of common sense about harm reduction. But let's just focus on, on Australia because, you know, again, this is a sort of paradox. You start off by trying to change everything, stopping advertising, plain packaging, everyone thinks wonderful. Ten years ago, I was really saying we should do the same in Britain. Britain has sort of done the same, but it seems like plain packaging hasn't had much of an impact. But Australia has decided, you know, in contra, you know, almost opposition or, you know, exactly the opposite direction to the UK of opposing vaping. So I'd love to hear your side of that story because you've been fighting that battle for so long. Share with us why it happened and, and, and how, you know, what's... Well, it's very simple, really. If you If you compare smoking rates in countries which are doing different things. You can see that up until um, 2013, Australia was doing pretty well. But by 2013, the uptake of vaping was really starting to have a big impact in the United States, and particularly in the United Kingdom. And then from 2020 onwards, vaping was also having a big impact in New Zealand. Heated tobacco products went on the market in Japan in April 2016. Between 2016 and now, the cigarette sales are down 49% in Japan. So we don't have great figures on smoking rates, but if cigarette sales have halved in seven years, that means smoking rates have to come down. So Japan's done it that way. Sweden and Norway have achieved the same rapid acceleration of the decline in smoking rates in those two countries with snus. Uh, Swedish women have started taking up snus and Norwegian men and women, of course, outside the European Union, 
have uh, taken up SNUS as well. So which country does which doesn't really matter so much. So we've got six countries that we can compare with Australia. And yes, there are differences about definitions and timing and all of that. But when you put it all together, it's pretty clear that the smoking rate in Australia is going down much slower than any of those other six countries, Sweden, Norway, Japan, US, UK, New Zealand. And New Zealand is really particularly interesting. The four major parties in New Zealand changed their policy in August 2020, and suddenly the smoking rate has uh, gone down. It's it's decreased by 33% in between August 2020 and now. It's a incredible reduction. So what we can say, summing all that up, is that it's very clear when you look at all this that the smokers want to migrate from deadly cigarettes to safer options where they can continue to enjoy nicotine but without the risks of smoking. So the consumers aren't a problem. And amongst the tobacco companies, some very keen to transform quickly, I mentioned Philip Morrison's National, but Altria as well in the United States, important, um, and BAT and Japan Tobacco, number of them um, coming on board. But they're, they're just the traded tobacco companies. We don't really know anything about the government-owned tobacco companies like China, the biggest tobacco company in the world, China National Tobacco Corporation. The Chinese government is opposed to tobacco harm reduction. So the paradox here is that public health tobacco control is doing everything they can to stop the produce, the manufacturers and sellers of tobacco from migrating from deadly products to safer products. It's as if we wanted to solve climate change and public health was preventing a fossil fuel company from changing from fossil fuels to renewable energy. It's as, it's as balmy as that. Mm. It makes no sense. And is it, is it because, well, I mean, I think the Chinese government position is completely bizarre because I think they, they're probably the people keeping the WHO avoiding or analyzing no, alternatives because, because they have a seat on the WHO apparently. And, and, and I guess there's a huge pressure. Yes, but I think you're, you're not giving full credit where credit is due to Mr. Mark Bloomberg and Mr. Bill Gates, who donate generously to WHO, always very short of funds. And they've given a lot of money, and I'm sure there have been conditions attached. We don't know that for a fact, but uh, it looks very much like it. Just as when, when WHO was going through its anti-harm reduction phase in the late 1990s, uh, the United States government was giving them a lot of money, and I'm sure that was a package. There was a quid pro quo. Yes, is that moral? I mean, I, I'm fascinated by the sort of the, the why people would be so anti something that is clearly so beneficial, and it, it can't be scientific. So it's either it's either moral or political, and it can't be political really at the level of Australia, can it? Because it's not like you're demonising drug users because smokers aren't. The underclass are they? I mean, you know, so what, why isn't there a more rational approach? Is it, or is it just a few individuals who've sort of got stuck in their ways? Uh, some individuals, some organisations, 
And it's been, for the organizations that are opposed to harm reduction, it's, they're much better off financially. Somebody is funding them. Money's coming from somewhere. And my guess is that uh, Bloomberg and to some extent Bill Gates supporting all of that. But there is also another element to this, and that is the, the battle we always have in the field of mood-altering drugs between the, the pragmatists and the prohibitionists. And the prohibitionists don't want you to take a drug that I don't like, and we don't in fact, we don't want anyone in the world to take that drug, whether we can stop it or not. It's another question. And so that's a huge part of the battle here in Australia. In 1994, I made a career-ending, possibly, appointment to see our federal health minister, and I somehow managed to get to see him. And I said to him, in effect, don't believe a word that your department tells you about drug prohibition. It doesn't work. It can't work. Uh, we've got 26,000 kilometres of coastline. We've got, well, in today's figures, I can't remember what they were in 1994. We've got 40 million containers arriving every year. <laughs> Sorry, 9 million containers arriving every year, of which three in a thousand are searched. We've got 40 million passengers arriving with their luggage every year. We had pre-COVID. Presumably we'll get back to that. And we've got this, this huge, largely unpopulated coastline with thousands of boats and yachts coming up. How on earth can prohibition work? And it doesn't work. So we do a survey every year in Australia mm -hmm. of people who inject drugs, and we say to them, how easy, difficult was it for you to get heroin, cocaine, amphetamines, cannabis, so on? And... I was looking at this recently in the 2022 figures when we asked people how easy or difficult it was for you to get heroin, 87% said it was easy or very easy to get heroin. And the figures for all the other drugs apart from cocaine, which was about 60 or 70%, were similar to the heroin figures. And they go up and down every year, but they don't go up and down all that much. You should have asked him about how easy is it? It's probably easier to get heroin than it is to get vaping materials in Australia. Isn't it? <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's the case. And of course, it is the case that if we'd said to them, how easy or difficult is it to get help for your problems that you've got using heroin, it's much harder to get help than it is to get heroin. Now, I emphasize that the People who were surveyed, and are surveyed every year, are people who are already using these drugs. I wouldn't have a clue how to get those drugs, but the people who are using them had no difficulty whatsoever. So just imagine this is, this is heroin has some odour, as you know, and so not hard for the sniffer dogs to pick it up, but nicotine and vaping equipment is odourless, practically odourless, so how on earth are they going to find this stuff, which probably occupies, we probably import about 100 million vapes a year. How on earth are they going to find that amongst 9 million containers, 40 million air passengers? They can't. And, of course, I didn't mention the parcels and letters as well. And why bother? What a waste of money, which is actually 
Yeah, well, we're going to have to roll. We've been talking for an hour, Alex. It's gone for a lot longer. It's been wonderful, talk, wonderful talking with you. And I hope you keep going. I want. I, I, I guess you will keep going until you eventually get some rationality in terms of Australian access to harm reduction for tobacco. And then hopefully you'll go on back to your, you know, your first love, which is which is alcohol. And one of the, th- I'll just share with you very brief. Very in- I've been approached by the by the King's Liver Unit recently because they're quite interested in in some of the herbal stuff I've been doing and promote potentially promoting the microbiome to see if that that's a way of reducing liver damage from alcohol. So I'll keep you posted if that goes anywhere. But thanks so much and do keep up the good work and you know share my thanks to all the rest of the, your teams because as you say it's always been a a group effort and you know you've had many successes and uh, I congratulate you on those. So thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Hello everyone, Dr. Hannah Thurger here. Sorry to interrupt the show, but we have something really exciting that we wanted to share with you all. Drug Science is teaming up with the UK's most prolific psychedelic research centre, Imperial College London, to record a one-off podcast special. But wait, there's more. On Tuesday the 15th of August from 6.30 until 9.30, we're taking the conversation offline and bringing it to the heart of West London. So yes, that's right. Not only are we collaborating with Imperial College for this prestigious podcast episode, this will be a live podcast recording and you're invited to be a part of our audience. Imperial College is sending us their best and brightest minds for an exclusive insight into the world of psychedelic clinical trials, many of which are not even public knowledge at this point. So mark your calendars for Tuesday the 15th of August, doors open at 6 p.m., And the podcast recording starts at 6.30pm sharp. And as always, our Drug Science Premium Community members will be able to attend this event for free and will even be invited to participate in the conversation too. We'll have a Q&A session where community members can ask their burning questions to our panel of experts. So it's a chance to engage directly with the leading minds in, in the field and ask Dave pretty much anything. Find out how to become a community member by visiting the link in the show notes. Otherwise, tickets are available now. Please see the other link in the show notes. So don't wait too long, though, as space is limited and we do expect this event to sell out fast. I look forward to seeing you there. And now back to the show.